morning, everybody. I'm Margie Byrne. I'm the Assistant Director-General of Australian Collections and Reader Services here at the National Library of Australia. And it's a really a great privilege to be introducing William today. Um, one of the things I'm pleased to hold in our collections are many of his wonderful photographs documenting different aspects of life in Australia. As we begin, I acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and thank them for caring for the land we now call home. I've lived in four of Australia's capital cities, but this is the one where I think Aboriginal presence is still very strongly felt in the landscape, if we have the eyes to see it. Scarred trees in suburban gardens at Waniassa and in school playgrounds, rock art at the Yankee Hat site just a short drive away from Canberra, the stone tools that are regularly found, again, if you have the eyes to see them on places like Mount Majura or Mount Ainsley, even the annual arrival of the Bogong Moths reminds us that we live in the country of a very ancient culture. I think in a way that it wouldn't be the case in other cities right in the heart of the city. This weekend is the fourth of our Experience China Weekends, um, public programs in support of the Celestial Empire Exhibition, through which we're exploring all sorts of aspects of Chinese culture and civilisation. Of course, I have to say that um, Celestial Empire is a major undertaking for the National Library and the exhibition and the accompanying public programs wouldn't be possible without the support of many partners. It really has been a massive uh, collaboration between government commercial partners and individual donors. First and foremost, we have to thank the National Library of China, which really has been extraordinarily generous in sharing some of the wonderful treasures from its collection to, to be showcased along with those from the National Library of Australia. We've had many supportive um, private partners, Shell, uh, the Seven Network, Wonder One, Optus Singtel, Huawei, Cathay Pacific, TFE Hotels, and we've really benefited from the support of the Australian National University Centre for, for China in the World and the Asia Society Australia, who've supported many public programs. And, of course, the ACT government and the um, Commonwealth government through their various programs have also been helpful. I'm glad that um, you weren't held up by convoys of truck drivers and have been able to join us today to hear from William Young. William is internationally renowned for his photography, but increasingly also for his monologue um, performances accompanied, accompanying his photography. I've known him um, when he first came to Adelaide for Jim Sharman's uh, 1982 Adelaide Festival of Arts as official photographer, and I'm a great admirer of his work um, since that time, and I've really enjoyed uh, seeing it take off in these new directions. As is well known from his performance monologues, uh, William grew up with little connection to his Chinese heritage, but this changed in the 1980s when he learned about Taoism and began to embrace Chinese heritage as well as other aspects of his identity, including visiting China several times, which of course is what we're going to hear about today. William's been... Um, performing his large-scale theatrical monographs, creating a, a really quite unique form of performance art since 1989. Um, and they've really found a... touched a, the hearts of the many people in audiences who've seen them around Australia around and in, around the world. And in recent years, these performances have also been successfully translated to... Um, film and television. I want to say that, um, that there's a bit of a festival of William going on at the moment because um, he is currently performing um, at the um, at the Street Theatre, his piece Blood Links and... Courtyard. Sorry, Courtyard Theatre. Thank you. Courtyard Theatre Studio at the Canberra Theatre. I was at <laughs> the Street Theatre last night. I'm confused. And it's, it's a really a wonderful story of um, Chinese ancestry and identity. 
Peter Wilkins described it in his review in the Canberra Times on Friday, I think, in superlatives. He called it mesmerising, captivating, engrossing, alluring, empathetic, beguiling, wonderful, powerful and gentle. And I, it, I found it really magical. So if you haven't seen one of William's performances, you, you have the chance in the forthcoming week. It's, it's on until April the 23rd. And... Um, you can also enjoy uh, William's photographic work, which is on display at the Canberra Museum and Art Gallery. He's been a fairly regular visitor to Canberra, and unlike a lot of Sydney people, he's a big fan of Canberra. Um, and at, at, while he was an H.C. Coombs Fellow at the Australian National University, he did a wonderful series of photographs called Breathing the Rarefied Air of Canberra, and you can go and enjoy them at CMAG. So, for now, let's get on with hearing what William has to say. Um, as part of the Celestial Empire programming, he's going to talk to us about his experiences with China. Thank you, William. Thank you. Oops. My notes. Oh... Open them up. Okay. Travels in China. The dramatis personae in this um, talk are, well, not even, well, it's me, me on the right. <laughs> um, but setting it up were. Fen Gordon, who's um, on the next to me, who's my producer in Sydney, and in the middle is Alison Friedman, who is an American entrepreneur, and she had um, she's got a company called Ping Pong Productions, um, and they promote or she's an entrepreneur for Chinese and visiting companies. Um, then on the left is uh, the, one of the main um, dramatis personae, Sophie Jumiyu. And she, um, she's a freelance... Oh, well, she's a producer with... Uh, ping pong productions and she had seen one of my um, pieces the previous year at a conference I did in Beijing and she had wanted to tour it in China so she kind of set up this tour and the other person is Natalie who is a uh, a, a kind of like an intern with Ping Pong Productions, and she's from Singapore. And we were all meeting at this um, Singapore restaurant, Shanghai restaurant it was, um, which serves steam food. So it's a kind of um, high-tech version. See, the steam is controlled by computer, the cooking and, and um, it's a bit like Steamboat, but the high-tech version of it. And so Sophie had arranged this um, tour. It took quite a while to set up this tour, uh, and it was financed um, largely by Australian Chinese organisations. There wasn't really any that much money that came from China itself, um, the, the, the money ca was, came from DFAT and um, the universities itself. There was a bit of money from the universities. So after this meal was steamed, um, all the juices dripped down into this, like, rice congee at the bottom, which, which we ate. So it was absolutely delicious. And kind of Shanghai and it's like cutting edge as well. So here's um, Sophie, Natalie and I in 
Guangzhou in the south. And um, we're about to we're about to do a talk at Sun Yat-san University. And so it's on the outskirts of Guangzhou. And so they've put us up in this um, hotel, which is in a resort area, a very nice area. There's a river um, nearby, one of the nicest rivers I've ever seen in China. You don't see blue, clear water like that much in China. And uh, it, it had a kind of country feel there, a lychee drying in the street. And you could walk up the side of the mountain and there was a statue of Guan Yin there. Um, it, it might, it's probably a poor area because... Um, although I have seen lots of shrines like wayside shrines in China, but there's, like, no big temple here. Um, And the um, um, calligraphy carved in the rock is absolute kindness. So here we are at Sun Yat-san University, where where, um, this is the student dormitory. The university has got about 20,000 students and I'm about to give my talk called The Story Only I Can Tell. And it's part of the university... uh, This university has got a course called Australian Studies and it it teaches um, uh, Australian culture, and there are about 2,000 students who study Australian studies, and the important thing about this is that they all speak English, and so I can do my talk in English, although we also have surtitles as well. And so, the story only I can tell, we arrive at this um, lecture theatre, the students have already put out, there's a whole team of students and they've put out pot plants as decorations and we've got a staff of 20 students um, technical advisors to help set up but the thing is they've had no experience in technical uh, um, matters and so they're totally useless and so (laughs) and not only that the um, there was an idiosyncrasy um, of this particular theatre where there were sound cues and the people who were operating the sound couldn't see the screen to know when the cues come up. So there had to be a relay of messages. It was just terribly complex. And so Natalie, who's got experience in theatre production, eventually she just took charge because... the. The whole thing was going nowhere for an hour. Um, but to their credit, the Chinese do the big set pieces like the welcome very well. So here was the welcoming committee. And 400 students crammed into the theatre. They had to put down extra blue chairs. And so the, the talk was a huge success... And I did a question and answer after it. It had gay content, the talk, and that had been a contentious issue with some of the universities. Like, they'd chosen not to take the risk and have a talk that had gay content. But anyway, there was a person who asked a a, a gay question, and in so doing, she kind of came out to all her friends... And so that was fairly exciting. And then, this is the kind of the rituals that I went through many times. There was the group photograph. And in Chinese hierarchy, the person in the centre is the most important person. And the, um, uh, the, the order of importance falls off to, to the right and the left of that. So if you're on the end, you're not that important. (laughs) 
And then after the talk, this not unattractive student um, kind of jumped on me and he said, I really love your talk and I loved your talk, I love your photographs, I want to see more of them. Uh, he, he, he couldn't speak English, uh, or he could speak a bit. I can't speak Chinese. So I said, well, look, why don't you come back to our hotel and I'll show you some more of my work on the compu computer. So I went back in the ho to the hotel and in the foyer, I knew not to take him up to my room. <laughs> and also I had to have Natalie and Sophie translate. So I showed him some of my work, which he really liked. Uh, and, and then he showed me some of his work and they were female nudes, which some were discreet and some were quite edgy. And I really liked his work. And he said that he told me that his teachers hated his work and they wanted him to stop, stop doing this kind of work. So, um, and almost on cue, as he told me this, there was a phone call from one of his teachers who said, oh, we saw him get into the taxi with you and we've been terribly worried. He's the bad boy of the class and we're... And he's under temporary suspension. And so Sophie said, oh, I really don't think William minds. <laughs> but that kind of made me like him all the more. <laughs> because I could see that it's so... That, that there is a kind of bureaucracy or authority in China. And if you're any way not not in the mainstream, it, it will crush you. It, it will relentlessly crush you. And um, so he, he left his card and, <laughs> and so I, that, that was me. I wrote bad boy so I'd know who he was. <laughs> but Sophie explained to me that his non-deplume was something like sickness of the soul. And which, which was considered, China is so positively orientated. It was like a reaction to that. And so, um, yes, so he was one of the most memorable people I met on this trip. So, and so I did a workshop at um, the university, a storytelling workshop. Uh, and these are the teachers, and they took us to dinner. And we were in a semi-rural area, and they took us to really the only restaurant in the place, which was a farm, and they did kind of like home-style cooking that, um, from produce in the farm. And, for example, that roast chicken was really good, and there was also this dish which was fuguar or bitter melon stuffed. And my mother used to cook this dish. So it was familiar, the food was familiar to me in the south. And they had this kind of like brown cake which was slightly sweet, like a sweet bread that you ate on during the meal, and that was also delicious. But the greatest thing was the crimson dragon fruit, which, um, I, I don't know, it's not so common here in Australia, but it is absolutely superior to the ordinary dragon fruit, and that was to die for. Next we went to Chengdu, and we arrived quite late on a flight, like this is 11 o'clock at night, and these two students met us, Welcome William Young. I don't think they got my name right, or perhaps some Chinese speakers here will tell me if that's a translation of William Young. The, at the bottom in Chinese, is it? What does it say? It's here, yeah, they got my name spelled wrong. It's really the point that I, I, was, I was making. Um, so, but anyway, they were gorgeous. Their names were Rainier and um, Alison. And um, 
Sophie and I, who, who was travelling with me at the, the time, um, Natalie had gone back to Singapore. We called them our, our angels. And so they took us to the university, so this was the view in the morning, uh, where we were staying in one of the hotel dormitories. Uh, I had quite a spacious room and they arrived the next morning with breakfast, which was um, kind of like buns, a very nice savoury bun, bread, deep fried bread, which I didn't care for that much, and a warm soy drink and a boiled egg. So that was great. Then they helped me set up for my talk to the students uh, in one of the lecture theatres. So this talk was kind of special because um, Chinese... uh, Australian studies is taught in 40 universities in um, China... And the head of Australian Studies, Professor David Walker, attended this talk along with the Australian consulate in, um, in Chengdu. And it's one of the headquarters of Australian Studies. This particular university is very supportive. And after... After the the talk, David had a dinner, or the university had a dinner for us at the university restaurant, and that's David in the centre. (laughs) I'm on the outer in this one. That's uh, David's wife and his secretary and a person from the university. It was the biggest table I'd ever had dinner at. Uh, and and the, the meal was really great. Um, it had... Um, this was part of the entree, but it was hot, <laughs> spicy. This was very artistic. Uh, uh, and another hot meal because Sichuan, which is the place where we're at, is famous for its hot and spicy food... And really, it was too hot to be um, comfortable. Then I was invited to a a meeting with the university committee. Uh, This is like um, Australian studies meets university heavies. And um, at this particular... It was fascinating. I didn't really want to go to this meeting... But it was just fascinating to hear the kind of polite exchanges between the two parties and 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 what um, ensuring continuing support for Australian studies. And so the person in the blue um, suit is the party secretary, and she is the most important person in the room. Um, next to her is the Australian consulate, Nancy, whose other name I forget, a lovely woman. And on her, um, on the edge, is the president of the committee. And president, president is a lesser role than party secretary. And that's David on, on the edge. And then... I had at the meeting, they'd asked me to introduce myself and I'd kind of um, gave a thumbnail sketch of what I was and what I did and I also threw in that I was gay because that's one of my missions in China is to be out. And so Nancy did a very nice thing. She did, she um, kind of put me in a photograph where I was next to the party secretary. <laughs> and I'm not sure if the, what the, sub, the subtext was, but I, I think that they were trying to say that Australia is a tolerant country. Chengdu is panda central. And there is a... There's a park, like a huge park, where you can go and view the pandas. They 
sit around most of the day eating bamboo leaves, which are very low in nutrition, and they, they eat it in this semi-supine position and they roll over to chew, so they're totally adorable. <laughs> they even climb trees and the baby pandas. <laughs> so Sophie and I caught a fast train to our next stop, which was um, um, Chongqing, which is also, well, it's part of Sichuan province, or it was part of Sichuan province, but it's become one of the biggest cities in China. And they reach such a size, you know, we're talking 30 million people, that um, they become their own uh, protectorates, and so all provinces. So the city becomes its own independent province. The, it's, there are masses and masses of skyscrapers, high-rise buildings. In fact, these vertical um, buildings are all over China uh, and, and they're in rows, um, absolutely uh, uh, kind of inconceivable for uh, um, pe people in Australia to, to think that there are so many people in China. Uh, but... What, one of the things that... I did, I did a talk at a bookshop here, but one of the um, things which um, we visited was called the Guild Hall. Uh, and um, it was built not so long ago, maybe 17th century. And these Guild Halls, um, they're quite traditional. That's an altar... In, in the um, in, in the front, uh, um, an incense burner, and I was um, I'm s looking from the main. Well, it's not really. Yeah, you know, I'll call it a temple, um, which, which housed Emperor Yu. Um, he was the the, the temples dedicated to him. Uh, now, now these guild halls were built by visit by visitors um, like merchants from the neighbouring countries, and it was a place for them to stay when they were visiting visiting Chongqing, and so it's a place for meetings. And there was a temple. Um, Theatres. There were three theatres in this place, places of entertainment, and there was also a museum. I, I was particularly interested in the theatres. This is one of them now. On the right there is the stage proper, and there's a kind of like courtyard in between, which you could call the stalls. And on the left is like the dress circle. And... I want you to visualise... The next photograph's taken from the dress circle in a different theatre, but it's looking over to the stage. And this is another view from the dress circle. So people sat around watching Chinese opera, drinking tea, and that traditional tradition still um, exists in, a, in China. Like, I, I went to a Chinese opera... Uh, I was taken to one in uh, in Chong, um, Chengdu, and and people still drank tea and watched the opera, and it's been. Although they pointed out to me that Sichuan opera is very different from Peking opera, but they had through history they've had their own stars of the opera, you know, a bit like Hollywood. Um, at first, I thought that the um, this chair was a bit deep, and that it wasn't practical to lean back on it. But then I was told that it was a, a chair for opium smokers, where you where you actually lied on the chair, lay on the chair. And um, this, Sophie pointed out to me, is a tablet that. Uh, 
extols the Confucian virtues. They're called the five virtues, and they are benevolence, righteousness, propriety, wisdom, and fidelity. But Sophie told me that her grandfather was a capitalist and he suffered greatly during the Cultural Revolution because of his beliefs. He survived, but during Mao's time, they brought out um, the, the five black categories. And the black categories were landlords, rich farmers, counter-revolutionaries, bad influences, and rightists. So, the, 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 so those people were persecuted by, by, um, by, by the cultural revolutionists, and her grandfather was one of them. And so I, I really like Sophie because um, she, she was an interesting person, and we were interested in the same things. We were interested in art and culture. And she was quite educa educated. And she pointed out to me that this is a map in one of the, the rooms of the, the, the um, guild hall that it really showed all the famous, f famous um, um, families in China in, in that kind of pot. Um, and my family name, Young, was there as a, as a major family in the southeast. So I had no idea. Now, in Suzhou, we did a... Our main talks were at university, but sometimes we did talks at bookshops. And this was a bookshop in Suzhou. Um, and uh, it, it, it's from a chain called Bookworm. And it was a beautiful um, tea, tea house that we were doing it in. Uh, but it, there was too much light I in the tea room. So we went to an enormous, uh, enormous trouble to block out the light and set up. It was just like one of these... Um, the second most difficult setup that we did in China. And um, all this for only three people came to the, <laughs> to the, to the thing. But it, it was partly because they charged, um, I think it was like $10, maybe it wasn't even that much, um, to come to the talk. And at the other bookshop, there's another chain of bookshops, um, and the talks that we gave there were free and, um, and they had a much bigger turnover. So we, we'd re we really got a lot of people at the free um, talks, but not at this one. And I, I think that really... Um, I think the price of admission really um, meant, counted to it because I, I don't think the Chinese are that... Um, used to just paying money for a talk. But anyway, uh, Suzhou is famous for its um, gardens. Uh, this particular garden is one of the most famous ones in the, in the world. And it was first built in the 12th century. And the person who designed it um, was inspired by the simple life of a, of, of a fisherman. Not a real fisherman, but the life as described in philosophical writings. So 12th century, that makes it pretty old, but it was re rebuilt or redesigned in the um, 18th century. More buildings were added... And I think this furniture dates back to the to the Ming Dynasty, and it was named. It was although it was changed, it was in the same spirit 
as the original garden, and it was called the Master of the Nets. Um, and and the the rooms, there are rooms all over the garden. Uh, they're not big rooms, and they're connected by walkways. Um, you. Yes, you get the the impression that you walk from one space to the next, um, and there's this um, Ming furniture in many of the rooms. The main um, area is the it's called the the pond, and there's a pavilion there for viewing the pond. And philosophically, these gardens were built for pleasure, just the pleasure of being in a recreated nature, and they were for meditation. Although they were quite noisy when when I visited them, but I guess... um, it's a kind of a luxury to see to see a garden like this um, with few people. Um, another thing about the the philosophy of the gardens is the view. Um, none of the you look at views through different openings. This is the Moon Gate, which is tra- traditional among the Chinese. And an, another thing with the fenestration, the walls open up at times so that the inside and the outside come together. Now we're in Beijing, and uh, it, it's a very modern city. It, it changes very quickly. I mean, the last time I was in Beijing, these buildings weren't there. And there's also this art precinct called 698. I think that's the number. 798, okay. 798. And uh, it it's like a huge area with a with many, many galleries in it. And some of them are really quite big, although it's a converted gas works. Uh, And um, sometimes they use traditional um, styles like calligraphy, but they're always trying to find new new ways of presenting. Um, This kind of uh, reimagining of the old Russian-type communist sculpture was very popular about 30 or 40 years ago. I I still like it. But now it's kind of changed to a kind of popular uh, recreation. These types of sculptures seem to be all over the, the gallery at this period art being fashionable. And I think that this is peculiar to China because of its economics in that artists can commission artisans to make this kind of work fairly cheap, more cheaply than they could in other parts of the world. And I had my portrait sketched, a self-portrait sketch when I was in um, this precinct. And um, it's funny, I would never have this done in Australia, but I didn't feel self-conscious about being stared at in China. It's, It's quite funny that psychologically I can blend with the crowd in China and so um, I was quite happy and comfortable sitting there being sketched with everybody watching me. That, that's the... If you can see it, that was what the sketch looked like. 
Now, in Beijing, we stayed at a hutong, which is uh, it's in a special part of Beijing, and hutongs are places which are built around a courtyard. And, and in this particular hotel, uh, this was the courtyard in the hotel, and this was. Um, uh, a famous left-wing novelist. I think his name was Lin Bao, or is Lu Xun? Is it <laughs> okay? Okay, thanks, Sophie. Um, Lu Xun. Okay, uh, he, he's um, been given the title of the father of the modern novel. So, so he was in the courtyard. But to be honest, the, the, the rooms were traditional, but I actually I found them a bit dingy and there was nowhere to put my computer. And because the light was so poor, I kept losing things. So although it was a, a, a lovely aesthetic setting, it was slightly impractical for modern needs. Now, this is... Uh, I was doing a performance at this theatre called uh, Panghao Theatre. Uh, and it, it's unusual, this is the foyer of the theatre, in that it's an independent theatre in China. Um, it's a proper theatre, like a, a Western theatre. It had atmosphere, and I did my talk here and I was thrilled to do it in a proper theatre rather than a university lecture theatre. Um, so this was... I, I did it with um, Chinese surtitles. And these are my admirers after the show. Um, Alison, me and... Sophie, Alison came along. It was in Beijing because um, she's the producer. And the theatre was owned by this dentist called Mr Wong. And um, he, he's got a chain of dental clinics and he's a bit of a character as well and they uh, finance the theatre. So... Um, the theatre is really subsidised by dental clinics. And here at the Panghao Theatre, I did a workshop with some, with some storytellers. Um, they, they were kind of connected with the Panghao Theatre. And I'd done storytelling workshops at the universities, but the students felt that I'd exposed their lives in such a way that they didn't want to perform them in front of their friends. And so they said, no, we'll do the, we'll do the stories, but we, we can't make them public. But these storytellers were older and we made it a stipulation that they had to tell their stories in public. And so they kind of self-censored themselves um, about what they could say. For ex Now, Lily had a story uh, about the Cultural Revolution. Her story was interesting because it was how the legacy of the suffering of the Cultural Revolution had come down to her. And... They knew that they could talk about the Cultural Revolution, but they couldn't talk about Tiananmen Square. And this person had had a... The, the, these people really wanted to tell their stories. Storytelling and identity are concepts that are, are kind of new in China. And she had a story about her father that she, she... It was a real psychodrama where she was coming to terms with her father, who, who she had more or less despised. Um, and, and she was kind of coming... Her story was about that. And so collectively they called 
their, their stories escape and embrace because they, they, they were escaping... A, well, I suppose that I'd call it um, a, a kind of suppression, but that's the way I read it. Um, they were escaping a kind of suppression and they were embracing a, a, a new direction. Now, we're going back a year to that original conference that, that I attended with Australian Studies in Beijing, where I was, uh, gave a performance. So it was at this conference that I met Sophie. Well, I didn't meet her, but she saw my performance and decided it would be good to tour the story only I can tell. And so they have these conferences where they invite... There are about 30 or it could even be 60 Australians at this conference and so they don't pay anyone but they, there's a banquet every night. And this one was about... It was called The Big Picture and it was about visual art. And so um, I was able to... Um, uh, after that banquet... Um, we grabbed... I, I was with my friends, the visual artists from Sydney, and we grabbed some um, leftover bottles of wine and drank them in the gutter in, in Beijing, which was quite memorable. And, and this is another conference event. It is at uh, M, capital M, which is a restaurant, and the person in the floral dress is Michelle, Michelle Garno, Garno who, um, who owns a, three restaurants in China and um, she's, she's quite a, a figure. And this one, capital M, that's the view from the veranda it, and behind that building is Tiananmen Square. But I just thought I'd mention Michelle because she's quite a figure. We stayed at the Friendship Hotel, uh, which is a, a hotel that which was built by the Russians. Um, and then when Mao came into power, China fell out with the Russians and so they left China or were kicked out of China. Uh, but this is, a, this is a showcase hotel. This decoration is very similar to the decoration in the Summer Palace. Um, and so it became a showcase during Mao's era and all the foreign delegates were housed in the Friendship Hotel. And it was also partly a way of controlling them, I'm sure. Another one of the conference events was a visit to the South Gate. Now, Beijing was a wall city, and um, this is one of... A lot of the wall, or most of the wall, has been pulled out, but the South Gate is uh, preserved. You walk up this long stair, and this is the entrance to the South Gate, um, which is now... Uh, a art gallery, Redgate Gallery, and it's owned by an Australian. And so the, this is the interior of the, um, of the thing. It's, it's on various levels. But I think... And that's looking up at, at the, at the uh, roof. But I guess the flaw in having a gallery here, which is totally, totally... Um, Spectacular. The the building rather dwarfs the artwork, and this is also another conference event where we were taken to a restaurant that served Hunan food, and so the food, um, there's a lot of vegetarian food, is flown in from the south each day, and. Um, it, it also is very fashionable in Beijing at the moment. 
So it's not entirely vegetarian. This is a fish dish. But as you can see, it, it looks and was totally delicious. Kind of appealing to the Western palate. Now, my favourite place in Beijing is um, the Temple of Heaven. And this is one of the entrances. Um, it's on an axis with the Imperial Palace. And so it's also so it, it's also set in a huge park. So you enter before you actually get to any of the buildings, you walk through quite a big park, and there are um, covered walkways like this, uh, full of people who are playing cards. It's used very much by the people. They come there early in the morning, some with bird cages to um, give their birds a bit of air. And, um, and people bring along recorders and they walk around. They do... This one is kind of like a folk, folk dance routine. And then there are more individual um, uh, people practising. The person in the red is practising with a sword and there's Tai Chi. And this person is actually stretching on a tree fork. Um, and the tree fork is worn away. But not everybody is old. <laughs> So, after going through many buildings, this is one of the main buildings, the Hall of um, Good Harvest, or something like that. Um, and the, everything about the, this is symbolic. The, the rings here um, um, are symbolic of tears... Of, well, of what? Oh, tears of, T-I-E-R-S, uh, tears of heaven. Let's put it, put it that way, levels. And um, the emperor would come here. It's also called Sky Altar, uh, which I like. And he would come here and he, in procession once a year, and here he would um, converse symbolically with the gods and it was all for a good harvest. He'd stay the night here, not in this building, but his whole entourage would spend the night at the Temple of Heaven. So Sophie and I travelled from Beijing to Xi'an by a fast train. Sophie was quite experienced in travelling and she figured that it was easier to travel by train than plane because it just takes so long to get to the airports. And th there are something like 60 universities in Xi'an and I was at this particular university, whose name I forget, and these were my two helpers, Lucy and Walter, so again, there was this setup um, where we had twenty helpers, none of whom knew anything, and I particularly wanted them to change the format of the screen because it was a oh, can you see it here? It was a stretch screen that was the the first format. So I would have had to show all these photographs on a stretch screen, which annoyed me. It just annoyed me so much. Uh, and that's kind of characteristic of China, that it's, it's very set. It's very difficult to do something else. And so they just say to you, oh, it's designed like this because the students up the back can't see. It's a big hall and the students up the, the, the back can't see unless it's a stretch screen which there are so many holes in that argument. 
you could, you could actually get infuriated in China, but in the end, you just have to laugh it off. So anyway, so uh, there was a question and answer after this, which I haven't, and th th there was a person who I'd kind of met accidentally in Shanghai, um, and he was a student here. And so he had a gay question for me. And the question was, are you top, bottom or versatile? <laughs> he had no idea how inappropriate that question was. <laughs> but fortunately, his English was so bad. <laughs> Sophie said to Walter, what's he, what's he asking, William? And Walter said, what's William's position in society? <laughs> So anyway, that 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 was um, just one of the things you have to, one of the mind fields you have to negotiate. Anyway, it was my birthday. See, in one of those photographs, and so they all sang me happy birthday, and we ate the cake later, and and these were my minders at at the restaurant. They took took us to this. Um, the only pl place open was a kind of western. Western um, canteen, and we had sort of pizza for entree and a kind of steak for the main course. <laughs> now, Sian is most famous for the entombed warriors, and it's one of the great tourist attractions of China. Um, and it's about two hours' drive out of the city. So you have to... Um, the, the university arranged the visit for me um, and, and so they supplied the driver and the student, Lucy, she showed me around. But it, it is very... I'd seen it before when I first went to China in 1989, but it's very impressive um, uh, and it, it, these photographs don't quite give the scale of, of the thing. And when I first went there, they only had one um, pavilion, pavilion was open. But um, now they've got something like five or six pavilions open. But, but this is the main one. And uh, this is in a new pavilion where they just show how the, the, the um, warriors were unearthed, the, the condition that they were in. And so they've all been painstakingly put together. Not all of them, but the broken ones have been painstakingly put together. And this is Lucy who guided me around. So it is extremely beautiful and, um, and well worth the visit. And it's now... I could equate it in terms of crowd control with Disneyland. They, they have set it out so that they can... Um, thousands of people can, can pass through. This is actually the souvenir shop. <laughs> so you can take home an entombed warrior <laughs> if, if you can fit it in your luggage. And this also is like a photographic studio, which I, I paid something like $2.50 to get my photograph taken here, which was well worth it. But the thing about it is this whole thing, apart from the first two rows, is it's an optical illusion because the actual photo studio is quite narrow. So um, that uh, that's a... So, so the background is like an illusion. So I really like Sophie on my travels and I thought while I was going around with her that perhaps I should adopt her as my daughter. But I, I've already got two adopted daughters in Sydney and so eventually, in fact, after we got back and we 
we'd kind of done um, emails and um, what, what do you call it? Debriefing emails. And I, I asked her by email if she'd like to be my adopted daughter, and she was thrilled to accept. And so. This is what China for me is a place where is always unexpected, and and things happen. Um, things happen to me that um, I suppose meaningful th meaningful things happen to me, and they are generally uplifting of the spirit. Thank you.